welcome all of you to today's forum. Uh, my name is Seth Mnookin. Um, I'm one of the associate directors of the forum. Uh, and on behalf of myself and David Thorburn, uh, the forum's director, we would like to thank you all for coming. Uh, and I'm going to introduce Noel Jackson, uh, the other associate director of the forum. And then he will introduce the um, incredible crowd he's assembled today uh, for today's forum. Um, Noel is, uh, in addition to being an associate director of the forum, an associate professor of literature here at MIT. Uh, he got his PhD in English from the University of Chicago. Um, and his first book, Science and Sensation in Romantic Poetry, examined romanticism's aesthetics in relation to 18th century physiology and the science of the mind in the context of the French Revolution and, other, and the era's other social upheavals. Uh, in addition to his work on the British Romantic period, he has also written about everything from poetry to critical theory to culture. Uh, so please help me welcome Noel and the rest of the speakers here today. Thank you. Thank you, Seth. Uh, thanks to our organizer, Cora Kraft, for putting everything together, to uh, the director, David Thorburn. And uh, thanks to you all for coming. Our, uh, Today's uh, event is called uh, Online Annotation and the Future of Reading. I'm just going to migrate over here to the uh, screen for one second. I've got uh, for you a few images of reading uh, with which I thought we would uh, begin by way of introducing some of these tools for digital textual annotation that allow students to, uh, students, readers, learners of all kinds to collaborate on annotating or interpreting a work to make uh, annotations and interpretations public and to respond to interpretations by others. We'll be looking at the, uh, some of the software and websites that make these practices possible and the uses, effects, benefits of these practices in the classroom and beyond. Uh, we have a really bang up uh, panel today. Uh, I'm very grateful that all three of them could uh, come out and I'll, I'll introduce them in a moment. So to begin, uh, some images of reading. Here's uh, St. Jerome by Fra Lippo Lippi, the 15th century, 1493. Solitary man with his book. Here's Rembrandt's mother, a painting of, well, I'm not sure exactly, uh, 1629. Their solitary figure crouched over her uh, printed matter. And here, a classic in the genre. Uh, there's uh, the great Cham, Samuel Johnson, a great reader and man of letters, compiler of Johnson's dictionary, among other things, uh, in a painting, uh, much imitated painting, by uh, Joshua Reynolds. I ask you, by way of opening, is this the picture of reading? And is this the picture of reading that is now uh, let's say, being disrupted, altered, changed, uh, revolutionized by new social forms of reading. As we move on, we see that social forms of reading have, in effect, always been with us, have always been part of a reading practice. This is uh, a, obviously a mosaic from Tunisia from the third century AD. It was suggested uh, for this slideshow by my colleague Stephanie Frampton. Uh, junior classicist in literature. This is uh, the poet Virgil being what seems uh, to be being read aloud or dictating from the muse Cleo, the muse of history, with the muse of tragedy, Melpomene, on, uh, on his right. 
Here's another scene. The, uh, this is a painting titled The Letter by uh, Gerard Terborck, a contemporary of, of Vermeer, a Dutch uh, genre painter of that period, women reading and writing in, in concert together. Another scene of women reading together, though perhaps less, uh, uh, less uh, charitably depicted. This, is, uh, this was uh, suggested by my colleague Wynne Kelly, a satirical view of the Lowell, Massachusetts factory women reading after work, suggesting how uh, social practices of reading might even be a little bit dangerous or uh, subversive. And then here finally is uh, Romare Bearden's lithograph, uh, The Lamp from 1984, which celebrates the 30th anniversary of Brown versus the Board of Education. This image was suggested to me by my colleague Sandy Alexander, wonderful uh, scholar of African-American literature and culture. And Sandy notes that as a happy coincidence, Brown versus Board is in fact celebrating its 60th anniversary this year. So social reading is not a new practice. In fact, it predates solitary reading and has coexisted with it uh, for centuries. Nevertheless, the practice of digitally annotating and commenting on texts, the work that sites like Rap Genius software such as Annotation Studio, in addition to other software and applications perform, strikes me as a development of undeniable importance. And I know, at least from this panel I know, as well as from all of you assembled here, that I'm not alone. The future of reading is perhaps an unnecessarily portentous title. Uh, the, the title proposes with a sense of certainty that could perhaps be considered cavalier or quixotic that there will be a future for reading. Uh, that, uh, that reading will uh, continue to exist in the same numbers in which it, it does now is perhaps uncertain. Perhaps reading will survive in smaller forms. Perhaps it will grow. What's certain in any event is that these are the tools with which we'll be reading in many years to come. So what is digital annotation and why does it matter? Where and how does annotation take place in the learning process? And what does it allow you to do? What do these tools allow you to do as readers, fans, teachers, learners, and so on? I've asked each speaker today to prepare roughly 10 minutes of presentation to illustrate these tools and to discuss some of their uses. And we'll then have a conversation among the panelists and after uh, at around um, uh, 6.15 or so, we'll, we'll be able to turn it to the audience, to all of you, and uh, hear from your questions. Let me introduce the speakers now as I make my way back over to the table. Our, uh, our first speaker today is, as I drum roll, please, let me just cue up the second screen here. Our first, our first speaker today is uh, Dr. Kurt Fent. Kurt is executive director of MIT's HyperStudio, the Center for Digital Humanities at MIT. He teaches digital humanities subjects in comparative studies and writing and German studies courses in foreign languages and literatures. He is co-principal investigator of the NEH-funded Annotation Studio, the which we'll be talking about today. Uh, he works as well on a number of other uh, digital humanities projects uh, through, uh, through the HyperStudio and other sources. Our next speaker 
is I'll, I'll introduce all three speakers uh, in a row right now, if you don't mind. Our next speaker is Wynne Kelly, a senior lecturer and my colleague in literature. She is the author of uh, the book Melville City, Literary and Urban Form in 19th Century New York, published by Cambridge UP. And she's published in several journals and collections as well. Formerly uh, the president of the Melville Society and associate editor of the Melville Society's journal Leviathan, she's now associate director of the Melville Electronic Library, or MEL, MEL, an interactive archive of Melville's works, sources, and adaptations. She's worked for many years with MIT's Hyper Studio, developing teaching tools, the latest of which uh, being Annotation Studio. And finally, on my immediate right is uh, Jeremy Dean, AKA Lucky Desperado, <laughs> the education czar, and that is his official title, I believe, at uh, Rap Genius. Jeremy is a scholar educator with 15 years of experience teaching at both the college and high school levels. He received a PhD in English from the University of Texas at Austin, where he worked as a project leader in the digital writing and research lab for four years, developing units and lesson plans around a variety of digital tools. I met Jeremy last spring, where he and some members of the rap genius uh, posse, I believe I can call you a posse, uh, some, some members of the rap genius posse joined the uh, conjoined classes of uh, our uh, CIH subject reading poetry last year to discuss rap genius, poetry genius, and the tools of digital textual annotation. And it's my great pleasure to welcome him back to MIT. And please welcome our panelists, beginning with Kurt. So thanks, Noel, for the great introduction. Thank you also for the organizers, Seth, and, and um, um, the others. Uh, I think it's really a great pleasure to be here to talk about uh, the future of reading and the future of annotation, or which way we, I think, both have uh, futures, which is really interesting. And um, I think it's great, Noel, that you connected to the long history of, of reading. And reading has always been, as we know, not only a solitary, but also a, a social practice. And as we know, uh, as long as people have been able to read, they have also annotated. Uh, so writing in the margins is, has been a practice from the very beginning. And it's such a practice, we don't even have to think back that we don't even need to learn how to do that. It's a natural way how we engage with the text, with the reading. And it also has always been a form of learning. Uh, so what I will be talking about uh, in my introduction, you know, it's not the full aspect of Annotation Studio as you know, you know, uh, Wynne and I have been collaborating on this project, uh, as well as uh, other people. You know, Jim Parody is in the audience, uh, PI on, on the project, and, and several other ones. Uh, this is, Annotation Studio really focuses on the educational practices. It looks at uh, annotating texts, but 
that's only the first part, you know, in an educational environment. What are the advantages of doing that in an educational environment? How can we engage students much deeper into the process of close reading in thinking about the text not only as a static uh, entity but also as a fluid entity that has sources, that has adaptations, that has references and so on. So it's really a way for students to get back into the process of close reading and really open a text in, in many different ways. I won't give you a live demo, uh, but you can go to the website yourself, sign up, um, and uh, practice your own annotation skills within uh, the tool. Uh, as you can see, this is uh, the main screen uh, of Annotation Studio. It really centers on the text uh, on the right-hand side, as you've seen from uh, traditional uh, images of writing in the margins. Uh, the annotations are on the right-hand side in the margin. And as you can see, there are also uh, annotations uh, highlighted in uh, yellow and also multiple annotations on the same text. So it's really focusing on the text and the annotation uh, of this aspect. But of course, when we move from traditional uh, writing in the margins into a digital space, it also uh, uses the affordances of digital environments, namely a social aspect. So how can we share this? How can we make this a participatory uh, environment uh, in which students can learn from each other and really go through a process of understanding, which I think is a very important aspect in thinking about um, really opening up a text from uh, quite often, as we know, texts are complex. Uh, historical texts are not easy to read. They make a lot of references. So how can students work through that process together with others in order to understand a text in a much better way? Uh, just another quick image. It's not only textual annotation, but it's also annotation making references, as I mentioned, to visual material, to uh, other web sources, to videos, and so on. Uh, and annotating text is just the beginning because we see reading not only of reading of text, but also reading of other media documents that could include videos and so on. But this is not the exact topic of this talk today, so we'll concentrate on the, on the textual aspects. So when we think about um, Annotation Studio, it has come out, and which is very important, of a clear pedagogical practice of many colleagues here, but foremost, Wynne Kelly. And Wynne will talk about uh, this. As you've heard from um, Noel, we have been collaborating for a long time uh, on different uh, annotation and, and pedagogical educational tools in the humanities. But it's also the way HyperStudio works in general uh, on these projects. It's always a collaborative effort between faculty, students, developers, uh, who engage with each other in an iterative process of thinking about what are the best ways to meet needs that arise from the classroom. So it's never the technology that is in the first place. It's always the pedagogical needs that then shape uh, the, the applications in major ways. So this is also the reason why there are many pedagogical ideas that have flown into this project. One is, and I'm sure when we'll talk about that in greater details, to see students as editors. Uh, students uh, make 
links to other materials. They also open up the text for their fellow students by making those connections. So it's really going into the text, uh, enhancing it, and by doing that, they're also learning how to best uh, present and make the text available to the other students. Another idea that fl uh, has flown into this is uh, a colleague of mine and a writer, Safa Genojak. Um, he has been very interested in um, making poems much more accessible. And the original idea was making poems accessible through, uh, through association, association in multimedia form. And this was also a, one of the ideas that we started to implement in this so that it's not only textual annotation, but really multimedia annotation, which could range from images, just sounds that people hear when they associate a certain word in a poem. And again, this is the idea that poems who are quite often uh, close to a lot of students because it's they're very condensed, uh, to open them up in many different ways. So, but it also reconnects not only to past practices, but also to practices in the humanities. And John Unsworth has called them scholarly primitives, which are really the core activities that humanists do in, in uh, a digital environment, but also in, in humanities in general, su such as uh, comparing texts, uh, making references, and so on. But one of them is also clearly annotating text. So it's one of the core activities that we do. Uh, but we also see students as novice scholars who need to practice and learn these activities. So it's very much uh, in this way not there is a clear distinction between uh, the instructors and the students, but the students practice in a way the same kind of scholarly uh, aspects. And the last uh, pedagogical goal, but they keep evolving and uh, getting more and more, uh, is really making the reading trans, uh, process transparent so that the students really understand also how they come to certain conclusions, to certain interpretations, and how this informs their reading, their in discussion, but also their, their writing. So just a couple of examples from uh, the uses of Annotation Studio. This is a use from a very recent one of a colleague uh, of ours in, in Spanish, uh, Roberto, and he has been using uh, Annotation Studio in a very interesting way, and this also uh, shows what we've been trying to do is to create uh, an application that is not very specific in the educational uh, uses. It allows for many different ways how instructors can engage with the, with the platform and implement their own pedagogical ideas. In this case, he has used a video, which we are not currently supporting, but he has used uh, the textual um, tra um, transcript of the video as the basis for annotation. And there you can see there's already a dialogue going on uh, on specific parts of, of uh, the video uh, through magical realism and so on. Uh, the other aspect uh, is people have been using it in, in another way. For example, this is, uh, these are Shakespeare sonnets um, that have been used by an outside colleague uh, and here it's really the way that the students get into a conversation not with each other but with the instructor. So an instructor gives feedback on, on these aspects, how uh, they have been using their annotations. So this is already broadening up and it's uh, interesting to see for us something that has been 
developed here at MIT is really going a lot, uh, getting a lot of traction on, on the outside um, with a lot of institutions. I think currently we have about 80 or 90 institutions who are using uh, Annotation Studio in, in their classes and it's growing constantly and we have a great number of feedback and also really interesting uses as I just said. So the uses very quickly, I already mentioned them. Uh, they ha have been used in a, in a wide range of subjects, but also outside of the humanities. Um, and its focus is really on, on um, close reading, uh, but also making uh, connections, as I said before, uh, and annotating with other kinds of media. So also practicing new media literacy skills, remixing ideas, and so on. Uh, the last aspect of that is also it's very important to think about uh, assessment uh, of these tools. And it's not only the tools, but also assessment of the learning. Does it really change the way students think about uh, texts, how they develop uh, their own understanding, how they create knowledge, but also how they then translate the annotations that they have uh, made on the text into different kinds of discussions and also uh, into writing, which is a very important aspect that we're working on right now, and I'm sure we can talk about that in, in the discussion, uh, and also what we found in, in this process. Um, the platform, very quickly, this is um, based on an open source tool, uh, and our platform in, in itself is, is open source. Uh, we are supporting different kinds of group structures, which is very important for coming from a pedagogical environment where students uh, want to work in certain groups and open up possibilities and sharing their material with a smaller group, with working groups or larger groups. Um, and there's also the possibility of making it public, but unlike Rap Genius, the idea is not to make it public to, uh, to a very large audience, but only to a class group, which has its advantages and disadvantages, uh, but we can talk about that in, in the discussion. Uh, and also, as I said before, annotations can have a lot of different aspects. They can be tagged, they can be organized in, in, in different ways. Uh, and so on. And just to conclude, also the, um, the design and the process of developing is, uh, the, um, uh, the application is really based on uh, a collaborative process uh, from many people and as also agile development principles. We have a large open source community around uh, the project. Uh, and this uh, has been really very interesting to see how the annotation community has picked up the idea, uh, not only using the core, but also other groups at other universities, for example, Stanford, using Annotation Studio as the basis for their own annotation projects. Just quickly, the team, as I don't need to read all of them, um, but as you can see, there are many more people who are not listed here, and this is also a project that has been funded by the National Endowment for uh, the Humanities and a couple of other um, uh, funds, so really thanks for that. So I'm sure we will get into more details during the discussion. This is just a brief overview of what the project is and what it can do, uh, and then we can talk more. Okay.
Thank you for coming. I'm so happy to be on this panel uh, with my um, colleagues across uh, the field of annotation. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about teaching and the use of annotation studio in the classroom, but I'm also interested in the question about the future of reading, so I thought I would take a stab at that. And I also want to talk about what literary scholars do, because people, especially my students, uh, really wonder. <laughs> so I thought I'd start with an example of literary scholars at work. Uh, the next slide will show how uh, annotation produces um, a scholarly community around um, annotation and criticism. So on the left, we have the um, uh, annotations of Mallory Ortberg, who has decided to riff on Little Women. Uh, this is, uh, she's a comedian in California. This is Dirtbag Little Women. Uh, so um, uh, um, you can figure out, if you haven't read the book, this is not gonna, <laughs> this is not gonna help. Uh, but on the right is a uh, tweet by, and actually it's Facebook, by a, an eminent Americanist scholar named Hester Blum, who is arguing that this is the most important C-19 work uh, going on right now, uh, this um, uh, conversation about little women in the um, social reading world. Uh, so this is where literary scholarship is really moving right now, and um, I'm hoping to get there pretty soon. Uh, so my recent work uh, with Kurt and the Hyper Studio has been about what we do when we write all over a text. Uh, when we encourage students um, or readers or fans to use digital tools like Annotation Studio or Poetry Genius, which is uh, part of Rap Genius, uh, and um, uh, use annotation to make texts relatable. And that's the word that students love and scholars hate and is really important for the way we think about reading and annotation. So I'll be looking at some criticism by Lisa Zunshine and Ralph Savarese uh, about um, ways to um, think about the difference of literary texts and the difference they make uh, when we read ourselves and others. The future of reading, I want to suggest, involves recognizing that texts are different from what we think they are. So first, writing all over a text. Uh, I've been working with MIT students, as uh, Kurt said, uh, thinking of students as editors, using Annotation Studio to edit a literary text like uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein or here Melville's Moby Dick, uh, and to create student editions of these works. Uh, they use research, they use class discussion, they do essays uh, to determine what version of the text they think would be most readable or relatable to their peers in the MIT community. So they're not writing for an expert, they're writing for each other and using their research to support um, a text they all can read. So in this context, annotation allows readers to write all over a text. Uh, and texts that were once unavailable can now be, uh, uh, they can now find online. And, and those formidable barriers that these texts used to uh, erect are no longer there. I, I'm thinking especially of the joy of teaching Billy Budd, uh, showing the manuscript version, which has been sitting at the Houghton Library all these years, is now available online. And my students can start to annotate uh, Melville's handwriting, which is extraordinary. In another sense, uh, annotation could, uh, instead of making texts more relatable, increase the distance between readers and a text. And here's where I want to invoke the work of um, Lisa Zunshine and Ralph Savarese, who are kind of pushing back against this idea that texts are um, universally accessible, uh, universally relatable. 
So uh, Lisa Zunshine is a literary scholar who's working with cognitive science and evolutionary psychology. She argues that literary texts are relatable precisely because they reward what cognitive scientists call a theory of mind. And that's the human belief in the importance of other people's mental and emotional states, and likewise in the importance of reading minds, and reading minds with empathy, with the idea that you can understand what other people might be thinking or feeling. This activity, she argues, consumes our social lives and causes continual stress. As we're always trying to read people and understand their motives, uh, we can't always do that. Uh, but Sunshine argues that um, literature provides a safe space for conducting this reading practice, uh, uh, relieving the social stress of not understanding people's signals, and reading characters whose motives we may eventually successfully understand. That by the end of the story, uh, you, you know what, uh, what they're thinking. So whereas in social life, we constantly risk getting the signals wrong, in a work of literature, the reader participates in an imaginative and playful design in which mysterious motivations eventually become revealed. So a couple of points from her essay here on um, reading and a theory of mind. She says, our tendency to explain observed behavior in terms of underlying mental states seems to be so effortless and automatic because our evolved cognitive architecture prods us toward learning and practicing mind reading daily, almost from the beginning of awareness. So this is something we're doing all the time. We're constantly reading other minds. This is not to say that it always works. Uh, in her parentheses, she makes that point. And then later in the essay, she wonders about literature as a place where mind reading uh, can actually stretch and expand. So whereas in our social lives, we might be thinking, well, I wonder what that person is thinking about that. Uh, maybe two orders or levels of thinking. In a literary text, you have a narrator thinking about characters, thinking about each other, thinking about, so you have many levels of cognition going on, many levels of mind reading. And she argues that it might be possible that literary narrative trains our capacity for mind reading and also tests its limits. So what you find out from this exercise is that maybe you haven't been using your full capacity as a mind reader, or maybe it's not as great as you think. Maybe there are mysteries you can't entirely resolve. Uh, and the, the, um, the reliance on one's empathy or mind reading is perhaps misplaced. So a theory of mind would lead one to assume that relating to a text is important social training. Collaborating with Ralph Savarese, a literary critic and scholar of disability studies, Lisa Sunshine has also explored what happens when we more fully acknowledge that texts can be alien as well as relatable. Ralph Savarese has an autistic son, and he works with non-speaking autistics. In fact, his son is um, a filmmaker, uh, and he's the only non-speaking autistic at Oberlin right now. His scholarship, that is Ralph Savarese's scholarship, involves recognizing the difference of disability, especially autism, not as something that is socially constructed, as in the discourse of much post-colonial or political theory, but as something radically other and more difficult to negotiate than the familiar categories of racial, gender, or cultural difference. In Savarese's um, interview with Sunshine, uh, he emphasizes that autistic readers encounter social behavior and literary texts without a theory of mind, without the skills that we associate with reading or neurotypical reading. Neurotypical readers assume that autistic reading is therefore limited. Savarese argues, however, for the beneficial effects 
of inhabiting these so-called limits, for they reveal our misplaced confidence in only one way of reading human behavior. And I won't go through all of this. This is a, it's a bit long, and some of it's technical. But he starts by quoting an essay which talks about um, uh, novels that hinge on what Ian Watt called delayed decoding as when in Heart of Darkness, it gradually dawns on Marlowe that what appear to be flying sticks are murderous spears. This is the moment when he sees the sticks coming through the air and he says, oh, oh, these are spears. And she says, uh, the, ins the impression of, of receiving this information, rather than crystallizing the object when you, de when you delay the decoding, um, it breaks up the habit of crystallization, that habit of seeing the meaning all at once immersing us in the profusion and confusion of the sensory whole. Uh, so the delayed decoding allows us to experience the language without the filters and structures that we ordinarily give to, um, uh, to words. Uh, now, Savarese has worked with a, a, a young um, autistic poet and artist named Tito um, Mukapadier, who argues that this is what he experiences all the time. And then when he writes his poems, he's simply putting down on paper what he experiences when he reads. Uh, he's been reading Moby Dick with Ralph Savarese. And uh, there's a d technical description of what happens to the brain when it receives the kind of information you get in a book like Moby Dick. But basically, uh, Mukhopadhyay can't um, organize the sensations he receives from the language of the text. Put simply, it, and, and the um, Savarese's it here responds to the trauma or violence of the text impinging on the self. It lodges at the pre-categorical level. It leaves the victim, a wonderful word for a reader, the victim, uh, flailing in an affective bath, unable to organize the past or live in his own body, his own senses, in the present. So that's what it's like to read uh, without um, a theory of mind. Uh, both Sunshine and Savarese expose human reliance on empathy, the assumption that all human behavior can be explained in terms of relatable thoughts and feelings, as a comforting myth. Instead, they remind us that our efforts to read other minds reveal our failures to understand the complexities of human language and behavior. This knowledge demands that we respect the texts of others and give them the space they deserve. We cannot assume that we know what we think we know. We cannot be sure that we have the right or the knowledge to write all over someone else's text. But this is where annotation can come in in another way. So even if we can't fully trust our readings, we still need to annotate because texts, if they're made mysterious and alien and unrelatable, still need understanding, still need the tools of annotation. So in relation to online annotation and the future of reading, I would suggest that annotation can, tr can train readers in this kind of respect for the text. In the digital space, students and readers can use the tools of traditional scholarship to protect the strangeness of texts, their alienation from and resistance to reading. I would like to see annotation help students become even more aware of their responsibility to text, to preserving the text of the past, uh, not simply to write over them, but to keep them and keep them alive. Their annotation might allow them not only to experience and express their own identities as readers, but also to recognize the limits of their reading habits and acknowledge what they owe to reading experiences that started centuries before they were born. Digital annotation can show them that the very social practices that make texts accessible can also make them other, and I would encourage that use of annotation. The future of reading may lie precisely in our discovery of what we cannot read at all. Thank you.
test. Now for something completely different. <laughs> Rap genius, what are they doing here? Um, in all seriousness, I share a lot of the uh, philosophy that Wynn was describing about reading and that Kurt is working uh, with Annotation Studio to, um, to uh, enact on, on that platform. Um, we're doing very similar work at Genius. Uh, in fact, I think some of the stuff you guys talked about are things I have thought about, sometimes uh, found articulation in our own uh, project, and you've given voice to a lot of stuff that's in the back of my mind as well, so I really appreciate it. Two things that jump out at me immediately as very much a part of our project. Uh, one, this idea of students as editors, our students as potential experts, our students as scholars. I really love that. Um, and making the text relatable are, are two things I really identify with. Two things that are very different about Rap Genius. Kurt alluded to one. Uh, by and large, Rap Genius is a very public uh, project. Um, we do have private pages for education uses, but uh, most activity on the site is taking place uh, within the public sphere. And so that is a distinct distinction. I think it's something we should talk about. Um, I think it's very powerful. Uh, for young people to be writing outside of the, the class uh, community um, and learning from peers, but uh, you know peers within a larger intellectual community as well. Um, and the other thing is that we're cooler, right? I mean, look, there's a black background to the site, and I don't mean by saying that we're cooler that we're better at all. <laughs> I think you know there, um, you know, I thought I joked with uh, Noel that maybe this would be a death match. I think you know Kurt and I are, have been at conferences before. We're, we're longtime uh, colleagues and, and collaborators to an extent, but. Uh, but we are cooler, right? We come from like rap music. We come from a music lyric website. And now you can read Moby Dick on the site. So there is a distinction there, maybe something that um, might wake uh, some of the more sleepy students in the, in the crowd. Um, I'll start off, though, by just uh, asking you guys a question. Uh, this is a line I don't know how many of you guys are familiar with uh, Kanye West. He's a, he's a rapper of some renown. Um, and this is a lyric from one of his songs called Good Morning. Uh, Good morning on this day we become legendary. I'm like the fly Malcolm X by any genes necessary. I know this is MIT. There are English professors at MIT. I learned this uh, afternoon. Um, so I don't know if there's any historians in the crowd or literary scholars that can help me close read the line in pink here, the fly Malcolm X by any genes necessary. If you can help me gloss this, you know, we'll do it live like it's a real classroom. Um, I will send you a t-shirt. I didn't bring any t-shirts. I'm sorry. Um, but I will send you a t-shirt. Uh, we'll exchange some information afterwards. Anybody uh, want to dig into what uh, Kanye's up to here? Uh, young man? Uh, so, by any genes necessary, I think is a pun on the line. Uh, the title of a famous Malcolm X speech titled By Any Means Necessary, where he was talking about the idea of racial equality. He was slightly more radical than some of the moderate civil rights movements. So he was looking for racial equality. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. Uh, can we put these on? <clears throat> uh, all right, so by any genes necessary is a pun rhyming with a uh, title of a famous Malcolm X speech called By Any Means Necessary, Malcolm X was representing a more radical civil rights movement. Um, so he was looking for equality by any means necessary. Any, anybody else want to comment on, on what Kanye is doing with it? You're absolutely right, it's a Malcolm X reference. Anybody want to dig a little deeper? What's Kanye doing here? Well, he's got buy and he's got jeans, so he's talking more about you know, 
commercialism, exactly, and uh, you know, uh, you know, fashion and things like that. Um, thank you. You're right. Unfortunately, that's my little brother. <laughs> I did not tell him to be the one to volunteer. Uh, he's never seen me present before, so there, it's not really, uh, you know, planned or anything like that. Uh, he's uh, got lots of t-shirts already, but uh, I'll send anybody a t-shirt that's interested in the Rap Genius t-shirt. Um, exactly. Uh, this is what the website Rap Genius uh, was built to do, uh, to close read the historical and poetic uh, contexts uh, and texts that make up um, hip hop, uh, the, the archive of hip hop lyrics. And so you can go to the page on Rap Genius for Good Morning, and you can go to the line, I'm like the fly Malcolm X, and you can see a version of what uh, this young man uh, gave us today, right? It's a plan, activist Malcolm X's famous phrase, by any means necessary. Um, it's got some other information here. I think you could go, you know, the stuff about, uh, about commercialism is not mentioned here, so I don't actually know where that came from. Um, but whoever mentioned commercialism might sign up for a Rap Genius account and go on because you can. This is a live annotation. It's the, the, the knowledge is being produced, you know, as we speak. So you can go home and sign up for an account and leave a suggestion here, and an editor at Rap Genius, which consists of employees, but also many unpaid fanatic uh, laborers who help us you know, build our uh, you know, encyclopedia, um, might accept it and integrate it into this annotation. And in fact, this annotation uh, has been authored by you know, at least uh, you know, 10 people or so over time. And if I wanted to, I could click on View History and see who uh, contributed what. Um, at what point and where it was. And so this is what Rap Genius was built to do. Uh, within the space of hip-hop music, they've had quite a lot of success. Um, this is a popular song on the site right now from Beyonce's uh, album last fall. And I mean, I just want to point out some metrics here. If you look at the top, there's some numbers. Over six million people um, have viewed this song. That's unique views for just this single page of Beyonce's. There's actually 69 people looking at it right now. There's 37 annotations created, and then one really cool thing about our site, something that hooked me as a, as a scholar and as a teacher, was that all the contributors are called scholars. So over 200 people have contributed to the annotation you know, infrastructure on the page. This is something pretty amazing, right? I mean, if there's any anxiety in the idea of the future of reading, which I don't think is actually intended by the title, but it's often invoked with some anxiety, right? Kids are just on Facebook all the time. They're not writing anymore. They're not reading, right? Something totally different. If there's any anxiety about that, I think the fact that thousands of people are contributing to annotations on hip-hop music on a site called Rap Genius that has popularized a button called Annotate, right? This is how it works. You select a piece of unannotated text, and you click annotate, right? Kids are doing this voluntarily outside of class, right? They're annotating. And really what Rap Genius is is that it's a, uh, it's a platform for close reading. And it started with hip-hop lyrics, um, but it has since moved on to many, many other things. Um, so we have a Poetry Genius channel, which um, you know, is for, for poetry and for literature. And you can see some things here. We're showcasing Marquez after his death. We've got Shakespeare's birthday. Um, you can see what song, well, songs, what I can say, it's a music website, right? You can see what texts are popular right now. Um, Gatsby's always really popular. Pound apparently is popular. Again, it's probably class. Um, and then Edgar Allan Poe is popular right now. So that's the front page of Poetry Genius. And we have, you know, all great literature out of copyright uh, on the site. We've scraped Project Gutenberg and brought over a lot of the texts to our site so that people can have annotation functionality around those texts. So you can go and find out what the deal is with April's the coolest month, right, uh, from the wasteland. Uh, and I think that this is probably one of the best places to go for information about the wasteland online. And it's like Wikipedia, kind of crowdsourced uh, reading uh, of the text. Um, 
But we also have some contemporary work. Is Juno Diaz still at MIT? Uh, so, you know, Juno Diaz signed up for an, a Rap Genius account um, and annotated some, a selection, an excerpt of the brief and wondrous, brief wondrous life of Oscar Wow. And this is a feature we developed for, for rap music, right, where we would have artists annotate their own lyrics alongside of their fans, which is pretty awesome if you're a fan of, of, of rap music. But we also are developing that same kind of verified program, verified annotation program for famous authors. Um, and so here the green annotations are Junotes and the yellow annotations are community annotations. Uh, this is a really awesome way to interact with your favorite authors or your favorite musicians. Um, and if you like Juno Diaz, this is a pretty great place to go and geek out on your Juno Diaz because he's geeking out himself on all this weird you know, science fiction that he references throughout uh, the book. And the really meta thing here is that you can see he's actually annotating what is largely a footnote. There's like three sentences and then he actually annotates the footnote itself and then the rest is a footnote. So it's an annotation. Uh, of an annotation. Um, I came to Poetry Genius as a teacher, I, or to Rap Genius at the time. I started basically hacking the site for an English class I was teaching and adding uh, all, the, all the novels and, and poems I could find online and, and put into the, web, into the platform and annotating with a class. And the guys at the website thought that was pretty cool and offered me a job. So I went the opposite direction of becoming a, a professor of English, um, although I do have a PhD. And here is probably our most popular literary text, uh, Gatsby. Uh, I added it myself before there were really any, there was anything called Poetry Genius or uh, many literary texts on the site. And my students were the first students to annotate this. And they are still some of the top scholars. We rank, you know, we've got top scholars of Melville, top scholars of Fitzgerald, top scholars of Gatsby. Uh, I think I'm actually number two. I was supplanted at some point by some user named Dark Knight. Um, <laughs> And uh, my students are still, you know, uh, among the early contributors to, to this, you know, uh, the knowledge surrounding this version of Gatsby. And at this point, it's been a thoroughly, you know, annotated text. You can see over 300,000 people have viewed just uh, chapter one. The way the website works is that if somebody has uploaded the text or somebody has annotated the text, um, you'll get messages and notifications letting you know if other people have interacted with text that you have put your digital fingerprints on or your pen marks on, or however you want to think about it in terms of annotation. And so, for better or for worse, because I'm the one that added this text, and because I have annotated it quite a bit, I get messages every day. You know, so-and-so added an annotation to chapter four of Great Gatsby. So-and-so upvoted your annotation on chapter five of The Great Gatsby. So-and-so edited your annotation on chapter seven of The Great Gatsby. And that's the, the social network aspect of, of the website. You can also follow people and, and see what they're up to. You get a news feed and things like that, so you can form little communities of nerdiness around certain texts and things like that. Um, but in a classroom, students are constantly being brought back to the text, right? Dr. Dean approved your annotation, right? Dr. Dean upvoted your annotation. You know, your classmate uh, added a suggestion on your annotation. Ooh, you know, like, you know, disagreement, argument, right? Let's, you know, throw down. Um, so that's a cool thing that can happen using the sort of social network functionality. Um, I thought I'd throw Melville up uh, because we have a Melville scholar in the room. This is chapter 14. Um, and an annotation. Cool thing about this one is it's actually a former student of mine who was in my, the class where I taught Gatsby, and then she went on uh, to use the site in another class. So this is um, her, you know, she's become quite a sophisticated annotator. And you can see, as, as Kurt mentioned, people can annotate using images as well as text. Uh, the blue are links. Um, one byproduct of, work, of, of it coming from a, um, from a, uh, music website is that we have a lot of, I'm getting messages here, sorry. Uh, we, we have a lot of plugins for audio and for video. And so I'm not going to play it, but this is actually an example of a private page 
from a high school English teacher. And he assigned each student, and this goes along with students as editors, he assigned each student, and similar to what Noel has done with the, with the site as well, um, assigned each student a chapter of Moby Dick and said, you're responsible for editing this chapter and glossing all any confusing terminology or, 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 or ideas and you know, close reading passages and providing historical context, et cetera. You're gonna come into class and lecture on it to everybody else. I'm gonna record you, upload to SoundCloud, and then we're gonna embed it in the sidebar. So if I wanted to press play at the bottom here, um, you would see that I would you know, play uh, this you know, high school student you know, lecturing about chapter 99 of uh, Moby Dick. And this is that student's profile. Um, and he's actually a former student of mine, and he's very active on the site. He also took this Melville class. And a profile for every user on the site gathers all the content that they've created, all the annotations they've made. Um, and so teachers in, in an education context can follow their students and can uh, assess and monitor their work by going to their profile pages in addition to looking at, you know, through the text that they're uh, working on. And also interact, you know, upvote, and things like that, I need to be signed in to do so. Um, but what I kind of wanted to show about this young man is that in my class, one thing that happened in my first experiment in the class with Rap Genius was that students started drifting away from the coursework. You know, being a music site, there was a lot of lyrics on the site. You know, Beatles fanatics went to the Beatles. Rap fans went to rap music. Um, this kid's actually, you know, English nerd. Uh, so he started annotating Frost. Uh, you know, not required for the course. I don't teach Frost. He started annotating Catcher in the Rye, not, you know, something I taught. But he found this home where he could go and, you know, dork out, you know, with other literary, uh, you know, folks on his favorite text. And so if we go through his uh, profile, it looks like it's all Melville here. Um, but if you go through his profile, you get down to, uh, to some other stuff eventually. Maybe not. Um, he did dork out. Um, and going along with something else that was said uh, in terms of you know, making text relatable, right? Students can annotate using popular cultural references. Um, one cool thing about Rap Genius, again, playing on our cool you know, aspect is that um, you know, it's, it's a perfect place to use popular culture to read, uh, so you know, quote unquote, high culture. And if that's a way to make it relatable, if that's a way to make it accessible to your, to your peers, or even just a way to, to bring out the depth for yourself and, and for anybody coming to the text, you know, teach your parents about the music that you're listening to through annotating, uh, you know, uh, let's say, Crevacore with uh, Lord lyrics, right? Um, then I think that's great, you know, demonstration of intertextuality, but also, um, you know, the way that we, you know, different sorts of culture can be connected and uh, be used to read each other. Uh, so this is actually, you know, somebody annotating uh, the original T-Pain. Anybody get that? All right. If you got that, you get a t-shirt too. Um, this is a course at Columbia that's using the site. It's one of the, you know, from the core, Columbia core uh, professor there putting up excerpts from uh, great works of, of, you know, literature, Western literature. Um, and we see here one functionality I haven't talked about the top part is a student annotation, and then the professor has responded, and another student has responded after that. So you can see the way that an annotation um, or a comment then becomes a kind of conversation, um, and you know, there's, you know, the, the margins of the page really become a space for that conversation. Um, and uh, this is also a local project in a sense. This was a, through a partnership with Harvard X, uh, uh, Letters of Paul course through Harvard X. And this was a pretty amazing experience for us as a website. We learned quite a bit when thousands and thousands and thousands of non-rap fans suddenly signed up for Rap Genius to annotate uh, the, the New Testament, you know, selections of the New Testament uh, on the site. But the really cool thing that happened here is that it's three words, a prisoner of. 
and collaboratively authored by over hundreds and hundreds of, of users, students in the Harvard X course. This whole long paragraph is annotated uh, by many, many people who, if I open up the authors tab, you'll see all these people contributed something. Uh, so it's a pretty remarkable public humanities project uh, and bringing a lot of people together to, in the discussion of uh, great writing. Um, grad classes are using it. This is a Duke theory class. Uh, you can see the, the little uh, weightier conversations going on in the margins here, uh, annotating uh, Frederick Jameson. But as a former grad student myself, you know, I can say like, it would have been great to have uh, my peers helping me read through the difficult academic writing for the first time I encountered it. There's new terms, there's new concepts. We can share the burden of that research and begin to have the kinds of conversations we'll have in the seminar uh, online beforehand or take those conversations from the seminar um, you know, online after the class to continue them. I like to think of Rap Genius or the Genius Platform as expanding uh, the space of, the, of class discussion asynchronously beyond the physical space uh, of the classroom. Um, I was told by Susan Stevens at Stanford that Greek has never looked better on a website, so those that would poo-poo the black background, I challenge that maybe that makes Greek uh, and other uh, foreign uh, alphabets look uh, all the more sharper. Um, this is a class at Stanford. Uh, uh, going through a Greek version of the Bible. Um, there's also, as, like, like with Annotation Studio, non-humanities content on the site as well. This is my wife, a biologist, uh, for, for in a class at UT Austin about a year ago. Um, again, an open source academic uh, article uh, that she had about 90 undergrads uh, go through together and um, not only share the burden of research of difficult academic prose, but also bring to life uh, the dryness of the Latinate, you know, species name here, right? This is what the fish looks like that we're talking about is gonads, right? Uh, sorry, it is about uh, gonads. Um, if you're interested in, in finding this uh, article, you can just search gonads on uh, the website and it'll be the first hit, even though. Um, so we have lots of uh, classrooms across the country, actually across the world, uh, using the site. Um, most significantly, though, clearly is Noel Jackson here uh, at MIT, who's used it two semesters in a row. I'll talk about his experiences, I'm sure. Um, he's done an assignment, which I think is really cool and speaks to this idea of students as editors, uh, where he's basically had students adopt romantic poems. He's not alone. There's also a professor at University of Pittsburgh um, at Greenberg, also doing this kind of adopt an assignment, adopt a poem assignment. Um, and I'll just finish by, if you'll excuse the irreverence, saying that not only is reading not dead, but neither is Samuel Johnson. In fact, Samuel Johnson is alive. He has a Rap Genius account. It's a verified Rap Genius account, and he's annotating Lil Wayne. Seriously. Um, uh, but he's also annotating uh, Shakespeare, and some of his own work, I think, uh, somebody dug into you know, the Samuel Johnson archives and put up some annotations uh, pretending to be Samuel Johnson. So I'll stop there. We'll have some conversation. But um, thanks for having me. It's an honor to be here. All right. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you all. So I guess I could begin with the simple question of um, the levels of annotation, the kinds of annotation that students, readers, learners, fans could produce on a site such as Annotation Studio or Rap Genius. I mean, it seems it runs the gamut from anything from dictionary definition to a kind of high-level form of interpretation. Um, as as uh, users of the site yourselves, as teachers who use the site, um, 
what sort of annotations do you, do you just tell them to go off and annotate a text? Do you give them a specific sort of guidance as to what kind of annotation or what kind of kinds of annotation you're looking for? How are these, how are these different sorts of annotations uh, linked to different assignments, to oral presentation assignments, as I've used Rap Genius for, for, for paper writing assignments? Can, can you talk to? I think one interesting thing about annotation is that you know, we're all on the same panel, we're all talking about annotation, but annotation is actually many, many different things, right? Um, for a long time, I thought annotation was merely my own kind of notes from the professor. I mean, uh, Billy Collins has a really great poem about marginalia, right? Some of the annotations he talks about are just like silly, kind of whimsical, personal responses to the text, and that's not something that uh, Rap Genius was really built for. Rap Genius was built for an encyclopedic voice, right? Basically, you are writing in the voice of Wikipedia, even though you're on Lil Wayne or on Shakespeare, and that's mm. a very particular <laughs> register, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's a little bit hipper than that on Rap Genius because we allow for gifts and for more inform formality and things like that and playfulness, which I think is helpful in terms of encouraging annotation. But we see people both on the main site, the Rap Genius site, and certainly within classrooms, um, bucking that requirement of an encyclopedic voice. Right? We see people wanting to respond informally, like they might in a tweet, to a line, and that yeah. kind of doesn't work with the, the encyclopedic register. Or we see people asking questions in a classroom context, which the website wasn't really built for, but it can work. So we, we struggle with that, you know, what, does, what is annotation? And in fact, we're trying to innovate um, and iterate on the kind of, uh, you know, UX for, ourselves, uh, for the site to allow for different registers, um, not just the encyclopedic voice, but maybe a more discursive voice in another space within, you know, within that kind of annotation bubble. So if you follow RapGenius, expect updates. <laughs> Well, I would say that uh, it really depends on the class. Uh, and, and the only thing I would add, because I think you're absolutely right, that, that there are all sorts of annotations, would be that um, mine are, uh, I, I will offer um, guidance on the kinds of annotations that might lend themselves to writing. They usually start with impressions and work up to definitions and, uh, um, and then eventually interpretive stuff. But um, it's also interesting to see how they make use of it um, beyond what the tool provides or what they're um, told to do. Uh, so I have students who start using them for taking notes in class. So we'll be talking about a passage. It'll be up on the screen. They'll be, and then they'll, I'll see live annotations. They're, they're taking notes while they're listening to me. And that will translate into the papers almost directly. So uh, um, they, they find creative uses of the tool. And I really like the openness of the um, that allows them to do that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. <coughs> what we have found, which is really interesting, students use it in their own ways, as you say. You know, they just start with highlighting, for example, interesting passages that they don't really know exactly what they should make of it. Uh, they ask questions um, you know, to themselves. They keep their annotations private, which is also a really interesting aspect because they can go through their own process and when they feel that they have something to contribute, you know, then they can make it public. So it's really, on the, on the one hand, allowing for that process, but also making that later then, making that tr process transparent, how, how they got to that point. And I think that's a really interesting way. And also, you know, in terms of the assignments, assignments could be something that are very specific about one kind of annotation. And we have tags, which I've mentioned, you know, explicitly. But the tagging is a very important aspect. So they can actually work on specific aspects, on metaphors, on certain aspects of, of the text, certain images. Mm -hmm. um, and then 
basically develop different kind of annotation sets almost that read mm -hmm. the text, as you say, you know, differently because there are many different readings of a text. Uh, and the, the way you annotate the text can be from many different uh, backgrounds and, and purposes. Sure, sure. So uh, I, I want to ask the question about scale, which to some degree has been anticipated by your presentations and re brief reflections by Kurt and Jeremy on differences between Annotation Studio and Rap Genius. Rap Genius, of course, starts <coughs> as a, a fan site, a place to um, uh, uh, transcribe and decode and interpret <coughs> rap lyrics. Um, it's, it's oriented, as you say, Jeremy, towards the public, becomes wildly famous, starts to get millions of hits, gathers a fairly substantial amount of venture capital funding from Andreessen Horowitz a couple of, what is it, a couple of years ago? Uh, yeah, a year and a half ago. Okay, so um, a, a big enterprise, a big public enterprise, and, and then you have Annotation Studio, developed in-house, right, from uh, prototypes of Mixamize, uh, I, I guess. Still in development. Right, right. Mixamize <laughs> is still in development? Oh, no, no, no Annotation oh, Studio. Still, yes, yeah. uh, still yeah. in it's, development, it's absolutely. It's not finished yet. <laughs> designed for the college classroom. <laughs> And as, and as Kurt says, designed for, for the most part, smaller groups, for publics that are um, necessarily of a, of, a, of a smaller nature. So um, advantages, disadvantages of each side, not to invite the, the cage match that Jeremy was afraid I'd be, uh, I'd be staging here. <laughs> well, I'll start by saying that I would use both in my classroom. <laughs> Uh, and for different things, uh, and that the kind of voice that you were talking about, the one that speaks to the, the public world is really important, and the one that's speaking one, to oneself is really important too. Uh, so I'm glad we have the toggle that allows students to decide when they want their annotations to go out to the world. And usually, I, especially in a new writing class with, um, I hate to uh, say this, but writing, early writing students at MIT may be insecure about their writing. Uh, the choice to go private at first is often um, uh, something that protects them while they're getting their feet on the ground. Um, but even then, uh, staying within the shape of the class, the, the smallness of the class, seems to work well for the time we have together and the kinds of things we're doing, which is small. Do, do students using Annotation Studio choose to make their accounts private? Do they choose to make individual annotations private or public, depending on their level of comfort with them? Individual in annotations. Okay. Is that, pri that means private just for me or private within the class? Private for just the me. student, okay. yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But they can also make it, you know, they're smaller groups. They yeah. can form smaller groups, and it's very easy to, to do that. So students can decide, okay, let's create a smaller group and in, within which we have a discussion, <laughs> and then they can open up to the larger group. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I, I think that Wynn is absolutely right. I think that there are um, very real pedagogical needs for uh, privacy for one's own annotations, and then also the limited uh, community of the classroom. And I think, you know, MIT, freshman comp, you know, ninth graders at a high school, you know, like there's all different kinds of yeah. uh, teaching situations in which different levels of privacy are, uh, are needed. You know, uh, one of the first things I did when I joined Rap Genius was like, look, I need private pages. I need to at least have the privacy that you're talking about where it's just my classroom. Um, one reason being that there's this one class in Texas that did this amazing job on Gatsby, and what are we going to do to add to that? We need our own version of Gatsby. I was a teacher of the guy. I didn't know that. But no, seriously, I mean, if you have, especially if you want 10th graders, you want them to say something about the green light, but then you know, hundreds of people have already annotated the green light. Like They need their chance to say mm -hmm. that, so I yeah. think... Clean text. Yeah, clean text, right? We don't have anything resembling what you're talking about where it's like just my notes. Um, to myself. Um, it's something that if I 
had more power over the tech priorities that I would say would be great. Um, but it is very much against the overall philosophy of the company, which is we are a public resource. This is all outward facing. Um, and even those I had to fight for you know, months, actually, to just get the private classroom, uh, private pages for, for texts implemented. Um, I do think, and I think uh, this is not to disagree with Wynn in saying that like, it's very healthy for students to have their own space and then share within a peer community. I think that's absolutely true in terms of, you know, as a former teacher of writing myself. I also think, and it's not to disagree, just to, you know, another aspect of that, you will never become a good writer until you start to think about your writing as something not just for teacher right. and not just for absolutely. school. And it will absolutely, you know, radically transform how you think about your own self as an intellectual, as a writer, and as a reader when you're forced to do that in public. Yeah. And so at some point, I think it's incredibly healthy to test out your ideas, to test out your writing, in a larger intellectual community. Um, and you know, again, it's not to disagree. It's just I think there's something no, very valuable about eventually sort of saying, all right, like, we've been talking about this in class. Like, go out into Genius and, and see what happens. And you know, people of Genius are nice. We're, like I said, we're all a bunch of nerds. If you're on Fitzgerald, it's likely that somebody's going to be like, oh, a really great adaptation. You know, want to follow me and I'll follow you. So, yeah. um, but I do think that that is transformative in terms of thinking about one's writing and, and thinking. Right, and I, that even happens sort of in the classroom, you know, sort of sure. suddenly that is the audience. You yeah. know, it's a larger audience. And they for, love to see what everyone else has written. Yes. They mm -hmm. love mm -hmm. it. And especially using it for peer commenting. You know, students mm -hmm. upload their own texts and then inviting others to comment on their text, to improve their text. So that's a very powerful feature as well. Yeah. And that gives it yet another different kind of audience. Yeah, that, that, I mean, from a personal use of Annotation Studio and Rap Genius in the classroom, I find the sense of ownership that comes with carrying out these annotation exercises really, uh, really powerful, almost as a preface to the taking it public part that Jeremy is mm -hmm. talking about. And of course, as Kurt observes, there are many different classroom publics as well. There's the small group of four or five within the larger group. There's the larger group itself, the sort of things that the group might share with with the, with the larger public. Let me ask another question about scale, and this has to do with the different kinds of teaching and learning environments in which annotation software might be used. The K6 through 16 classroom, the college classroom, the MOOC, which if you've been living underground is the massive open online course, um, such as Harvard X on the, on the Pauline Epistles, um, or, or the, the, the general reading public. Um, how do you um, how do you use annotation differently in for these different for these different groups these different publics these different learning situations, or how might one? I mean, I realize there are right. no high school teachers here. Well, you know, sort of we're expanding you know uh, annotation studio in, in different to different groups as well. Uh, right now, the the strategy is so that they could all have their own you know annotation studio implementation you know at different institutions, and they can then decide what the public is within that institution. But it's clearly also a tendency to go a little more public, and also what do we do with the annotations with great annotations that students have come up with? How can we share them? <coughs> Um, but we, we don't see ourselves because we're not quite you know, a company yet and we don't have the, the funding in order to do that, not seeing us as a service, but more as, as an experimental space for how this could work in an educational environment. 
building the tools for that, to also make the annotations accessible through open formats mm -hmm. so that other annotation systems, you know, hopefully at one point uh, Rap Genius as well, can, can then integrate those annotations and attach them to, to existing texts. So there's a sharing going on that is really interesting. So I have a question for you. Um, so if I were to teach a MOOC, which I've never done, and I were to um, use Rap Genius, uh, how, how much do you find people are reading uh, all of those annotations? If you have thousands of people annotating a site, I, um, can you ask, um, uh, so in my classroom, the students, you know, if there are 25 people, that's a lot of annotations to read. So if there are thousands, can you organize them by topics? Can you get them um, in a shape for people to read, or do they kind of find their own way, and um, is that important? To people being classmates or people being like the teachers? And I mean, so if you've got thousands of people looking at thousands of annotations on right. a site, is there any way to guide them? I mean, I suppose they can search, right? But um, how would you manage um, annotations on that scale in terms of being read? Well, I think the key problem actually is not so much reading annotations, but the moderation process within an annotation. Yeah, and so okay. this is something that kind of uh, bit us um, in the in the heel, is that what you said? Um, <laughs> on the hind, oh, on yeah, bit us sure. somewhere when we got the Harvard X project launched. We're like so excited about yeah, Harvard X is using Rap Genius, this is so crazy. And then suddenly thousands of people signed up for the site, and suddenly they were assigned to read Philemon and annotate Philemon. And then suddenly, like those three <laughs> words of Philemon were annotated, and then there was, you know, 50 to 100 yeah. suggestions. And that is illegible, right? That is yeah, what that becomes right. illegible because that, well, unless you like reading. You know, comment threads that that more, is more illegible. So, the key really is the moderation process. Okay. Um, and what works absolutely works about rap genius is that when Jay Z releases a song, some super nerd transcribes the lyrics, probably three or four of them, right? And then a bunch of other super nerds start annotating it, right? Um, and then editors at the site. Again, these are people that are hip hop fans and. Uh, have worked on the site for a while and learned the format of you know the digital interface, but also know something about rap. So they are you know scholars in that sense. Um, they edit it down, so there'll be stuff that's irrelevant, stuff that works together, and they have to actually do editorial work where you know comment A can be fused with comment B. But there's probably some transitional work that needs to be done, and they do that editorial work, um, and it becomes more and more coherent. So now when you go to a Jay Z song. It is a pretty coherent reading experience. Again, now that is music lyrics versus Moby Dick may be different. He has some short chapters, though. Um, but uh, so much so that by the next morning, when the PhD scholar, you know, PhD in African American literature wakes up and says, oh, a new Jay-Z song came out at 2 a.m. last night. Let me go check it out. Nothing to be done, right? Um, you know, I, I have a PhD in African American literature. I have a chapter on hip hop. I struggle to find a place to put an annotation on Jay-Z because the, the content and the moderation is so well curated and edited by the community. Hmm. Now, for Thackeray, <laughs> we don't have a huge Thackeray community. So if some, yet. you know, well, yeah. So if some, you know, wacko, you know, Victorian bad close reader starts going, you know, crazy on Thackeray, um, you know, there could be some stuff there that's not as relevant. Um, and so, but within the space of a classroom, the teacher and students take care of that moderation. Uh -huh. um, but we did have to kind of have a triage for the Harvard X class. We were suddenly like, oh, wow, we need to start <laughs> cleaning this up. And so we worked with the teaching fellows, but we also had to use some of our own intellectual resources to um, collaboratively start editing that down so that it was legible, so that other people could add 
their ideas, mm -hmm. um, and it was an intense process. So this isn't how collaborative annotation works on Annotation Studio, no, correct? No, it doesn't, yeah. But uh, I find that this approach very interesting because you have that uh, you know, scale issue. We don't curate yeah. the material. No, we don't right. curate that at right. all. You know, sort of you have more like a Wikipedia model, yeah. you know, sort of where people change sort of the same annotation over and over again until it reaches a point you know, sort of where most people accept that. Whereas for us, it's, it's a layering of annotation. Uh -huh. so, uh, Students can layer, you know, the same text, you know, with different kinds of annotations. So there's a dialogue already going on, but it's also always, you know, integrated into the classroom discussion. So I think that's where this is happening, and this is also the difference, you know, in terms of scale. We think about the classroom as the primary uh, venue for discussing these, but you have clearly a different approach to that. And individual authorship of annotations is to a degree lost. I mean, you saw uh, yeah. on that um, Malcolm X annotation for Kanye West, there were 10 usernames listed. So I know who contributed. I could click on a button and see the history. Um, but in fact, that annotation is now the, a genius annotation. And I can I see who wrote it, but um, mm -hmm. it's not you know, my annotation. And so, you know, when people start use our site within the classroom and they use those private pages that we have, it is more similar to this, where you can leave conversations intact, you don't have to be as vigilant about curating an encyclopedic voice, and you can um, allow a slightly different kind of use of the, of the platform. So you get a community of students, learners, fans, readers, whomever together, and there are going to be interpretive disputes that arise, uh, differences of opinion of how to read something. How are those sorts of differences um, managed, adjudicated on either uh, side? This is a little bit clearer how it <laughs> how it's done through the, uh, the the medium of the editors. So far, I haven't gotten any offensive annotations. <laughs> I haven't had to, to deal with you know things at that level. Nothing you would have to remove. Yeah. yeah. No. And and what I've observed is the students you know relate their comments then to each other. Uh, either by not agreeing or agreeing or adding to an annotation, but it's they, they, it's visible, you know, sort of almost also like a thread. Uh, but it can also filter that out, so which is really interesting. But there's a lot, as I said before, happening in the classroom where that negotiation is taking place, and that also happens around the tags because we use folksonomies for tags, so you can basically use anything as a tag. Mm -hmm. But what we've observed is also that the students within the class, you know, then. Uh, discuss, of course, with the instructor what are the most appropriate tags to use to uh, support the classroom discussion. And that's, again, it's a, it's a matter of making it flexible and so that different users and instructors can shape it to their pedagogical goals, to their needs, but also the students can do that themselves. There, there's a PhD dissertation to be written on the sociology of rap genius moderation. I mean, hmm. especially on the hip-hop How many side. moderators are there? Um, there's probably hundreds of moderators. I actually don't know the numbers. There's hundreds of moderators probably. And moderator is actually different from editor. Okay. So if you're just an, uh, a, a user, then your first promotion would be to editor. User, And then your next promotion moderator. would be to moderator. And then there's higher levels of the hierarchy. It's, it's Byzantine. Um, <laughs> and there's forums on the website. We have a forum space where you know, there are moderators saying, this guy never should have been editor. His stuff is crazy. And then you know, other moderators defend him. I mean, there's weird. There's beefs that are formed. There are factions that are formed. <laughs> There are you know, secessions that go on. I mean, uh, it is really, really intense. Um, but the end product, I think, you know, with the rap lyrics, you know, uh, under, the, under the magnifying glass, is really solid. I mean, there, I, I didn't mention it, but there's 
if you teach hip hop and you're looking close at, at lyrics, there's no better place. Don't waste your money on the Yale anthology. Don't waste your, well, you could buy Decoded. It's a beautiful book but, uh, by Jay-Z. But this is a much more vibrant intellectual space in which to look at rap lyrics, and we hope that it will eventually be that for Shakespeare. Let me talk about the issue of copyright, Jeremy. Uh, rap genius has been uh, slapped on the wrist a couple of times by the National Music Publishers Association for, uh, what is it, a leak of, uh, of rap lyrics, or is it simply the publication of, of uh, these works under copyright? Uh, look for updates on that story, by the way. Okay. Uh, hilarious updates on, on that story in, in the future. Um, but, uh, in, you know, in general, there were, you know, copyrighted lyrics. Lyrics are under copyright. There were copyrighted lyrics on Rap Genius for a long time. And we formed licensing deals uh, after the fact, you, uh -huh. know, at, you know, farther down the line. At this point, we've formed licensing deals with the two major music copyright owners uh, in the world, uh, Sony and uh, Columbia, I think, uh, or Universal or something. I don't really know. I'm, I'm not on the music side. I'm just yeah. a humble school teacher. Um, <laughs> So those licensing deals came late. They came. Um, those licensing deals will probably be different once we start to make money. I mean, Rap Genius doesn't make any money. Yeah. Uh, Rap Genius uh, doesn't have a revenue stream. And so right now, um, you know, nobody's really knocking on our door. I will say that one of the genius things about Rap Genius was they put up those lyrics. They involved artists and record labels willingly to the point where artists, with the exception of Jay-Z, basically had to come to Rap Genius to promote their work, just as they would tweet a mixtape for a new album, they would also release and annotate some of their own lyrics on Rap Genius. It became a part of the promotional arm of the music, rap music industry specifically um, before stuff was copyrighted mm -hmm. um, because of how engaging um, you know, the, the platform is and for, you know, for fans to read lyrics and for artists to talk about their lyrics and for fans and artists uh, to interact. But copyright is a, is a major issue, right? Not for Shakespeare, but if we want to add all of... Um, you know, or Melville, if we want to add a great annotate, uh, the best, you know, um, translation of Dante, or if we want to add everything by um, Hemingway. Um, or if you wanted to slap the entirety of Juno Diaz's novel. Yeah, um, that's, a, that's a whole different uh, mm -hmm. game, and uh, probably not going to play out in the way it did in the hip-hop industry. Um, so, again, I'm not a copyright lawyer, but I'm sure we have some copyright. So this is an interesting question because we have some protection under fair use and educational use, so it's possible we might have more flexibility in this area than you do, um, and yet you're also doing educational work, so why shouldn't you have the same um, protections that... But in, in is addition it because to you're a that, commercial organization? Uh, ostensibly, I suppose, uh, although we'd love to take, pull you to the stand if there's any you know, <laughs> legal uh, issue at some point. I, I do think with the education stuff, there's fair use, although, you know, you can't Xerox the Great Gatsby for your class, right? right? I mean, okay. you still, you, that's, that's not fair use, so I don't no, know fair use limited. law. No, But I do think also, again, not to the letter of the law, that even outside of the classroom, there's a transformative, I mean, that's one of the words within fair use policy. I don't think it uh, would bear out in court, but there's a transformative aspect to say that, um, you know, if we did put up all of Juno Diaz's work uh, annotated by the world, but that is something different than what um, Random House publishes in book form? I don't know mm -hmm. what whose publisher is. I think it's Random House. No, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think the transformative aspect is something that we've discussed with MIT lawyers, you know, actually gets us even 
outside a little bit of, of the fair use, so we can actually use more because it's a transformative use. Fair use in your caboose. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Ah, yeah, there we go. Have you considered expanding to rap studio? <laughs> <laughs> rap studio. Well, that's then, the next thing, yeah. Then we really have to. Yeah, <laughs> yeah then, then, then we come to blows. I think we've reached about the time of uh, the uh, uh, presentation where we can take some questions from the audience, so um, please, uh, come on down to one of the mics on either side of the room. I'll ask you uh, when you do uh, come down to introduce yourself and uh, let us know uh, who you are. Um, but please, some questions for our panelists. David. Well, I'll start so to loosen people up. Please ask questions, people. Listen, uh, what about the downside? What about the dark side of this? You know, there's a very great famous poem by J.V. Cunningham which, has the, which is about annotation. And it contains the lines, uh, something like this, for gloss demands a gloss annexed, till busy hands blot out the text, and all's coherent. Search in this gloss, no text inherent. The text was loss. The gain is gloss. How about that? What about the negative part, the, the possibility that the text itself, the original experience, can be overwhelmed or trivialized by the idea that, well, this passage makes me feel very excited and remi reminds me of my grandpa. And this, well, what has that got to do with Moby Dick? You know, that's the danger, it seems to me, of, or at least one aspect of a, a down, don't misunderstand me, I think this is a very exciting uh, phenomenon, and I think this social, uh, engagement with reading is very exciting, but there are also problematic aspects of it. Which we, is exactly we, why I was trying to talk about um, keeping the text strange uh, and reminding students that, that when they engage with a text, uh, it isn't all about them. Mm -hmm. So I think it has to do with your pedagogy uh, and the way that you uh, um, work with, with annotation. But uh, as you've discovered, it really starts with students finding the voice in the first place. Uh, and yeah, you lose some of the um, uh, the uh, the, uh, the deference, the reverence people have for the text at first. But then I think that's what scholarship does: is restore the the strangeness, uh, the distance. Mm -hmm. I think what you lose is the uh, the solitude of reading um, most of all, in the sense that uh, you know Billy Collins's poem. Well, it's actually contradictory. Billy Collins' poem ends with him discovering an annotation in The Catcher in the Rye that's basically somebody spilled some egg salad on the page and said, pardon the egg salad stains, but I'm in love. But, and so not, the, not him reading that, but that person reading and sort of just having a very personal um, expo experience with the text and with the characters, uninhibited by other voices or the noise of you know, clicking on things or opening up things. I think that is lost. But I also think, you know, a lot of people challenge me and say, this is too noisy, you know, people are clicking on things, they're moving away from the text, um, and so it's like this accelerated reading. And I would argue that this form of close reading is actually a slower form of, of, of reading. It's a slow reading practice in the sense that you're looking at a line, and then you're, you know, looking at an annotation, and you have this, you're, you're brought into a deeper well, not, not a, a different kind of well or a different depth of well, different, different kind of depth. Um, through reading annotation and through annotating, um, it's a different experience of the text. But, but there are also different kinds of readers. So yeah. some readers really enjoy and they want to have and see the annotations of others because that inspires them to read more and to think about the text differently. 
Whereas others say, well, I get com completely distracted. You know, I want to turn this off. And that's one thing that we've implemented in the annotation studio that we can say, well, you can turn it off. You know, sort of, you don't have to be bothered, in, so to speak, by the noise of, of the other mm -hmm. annotations. But others can see, well, I want to see that immediately. I want to get inspired by that. Yeah, well, one thing that occurs to me from your comments that's worth thinking about, too, I think about my own practice of solitary reading all my life. Uh, it always was accompanied by annotation, but they were solitary annotations. Every single book I ever read is full of my scribbles. And in fact, one thing, it's obvious, I suppose, but they're, they become precious artifacts to me. They're the history of my life. Uh, I'm not even talking about my teaching texts, which of course are noble ruins because they're falling <laughs> apart, right? Uh, but even, you know, texts that I've read casually are much more valuable to my children and my grandchildren than, than other texts. That's another aspect of annotation, I suppose, not, not a social one that uh, I think will not disappear either. Well, I guess another potential aspect of the loss that you uh, speak of is the loss of the physical form of the book or or printed matter as more and more um, the texts move online, as more and more classes are conducted um, using virtual materials. Um, per perhaps we're we're getting away from that moment, right? Of the uh, but if you can the, leave the, a the Samuel Johnson. That at least with digital annotation, you can continue annotating even if the text is digital, and that yeah. that you know. Uh, seems so important. It seems not long ago people were lamenting that uh, the practice of marginalia was going to die with the death of the printed yeah. book, right? And it seems marginalia will survive perhaps much yeah, longer right, than right, the book right, does. Yeah, but, but it's exactly this kind of personal record, you know, that's, that's a different story. It moves into the digital space. And but, but you can do that. You can keep that same personal record on, on annotation studio. You yeah, can read exactly. and, and yeah, yeah. annotate and never make it public mm -hmm. and have that record and maybe right. revisit it and oh, comment yeah. on your own Don't annotations <laughs> 10 years back. I mean, I think that would be cool. Yeah. Questions, <laughs> thoughts, comments from the crowd? Yes. Um, so, uh, what's your name? for your discussion. My name is Desi Gonzalez. I'm in Comparative Media Studies. Um, and just thinking about um, something that you were talking about, about rap genius and the way that it's there open to the public, anyone can see it, reminds me also of a terrible practice that a lot of my classmates and maybe I once or twice did while, when I was in high school, which was um, not reading entire text and just reading the cliff notes or the spark notes or whatever you might have. Um, and that, um, and that uh, not saying that that is something that would happen with Rap Genius or Annotation Studio or these sort of tools, but kind of thinking of these as an alternative to that. Um, and having sort of that record. Um, not so much, I'm not really trying to get into this question of like, is this a good thing or a bad thing? I'm actually more interested in sort of like the cliff notes and spark notes standing as this sort of authorial reading of things you can come into class and say to your teacher versus um, how these annotative, annotation tools, we're talking about them as more of these multiple interpretations, these, these tools that allow for multiple interpretations, which I think is great. Um, but they, then it gets me to think sort of this um, idea of like, are we trying to achieve a cons consensus through these tools and then create a new sort of authorial reading that, that maybe the cliff notes or spark notes might give off? Or are we really championing these multiple interpretations for what they are? Um, and, and I've heard you guys talk about things like um, bad annotations on Rap Genius or um, when you were talking about uh, keeping the text strange and that there might be some ultimate one reading that we might be trying to get to. So that is a lot of questions <laughs> in one, but uh, hopefully something you guys can get into. I'll, I'll respond first just because I have a deep anxiety about Schmoop and 
uh, in SparkNotes, specifically because I taught high school for uh, <laughs> half a dozen years, and pretty famously every year would like print out SparkNotes without any evidence and accuse the entire class of just reading SparkNotes and like throw it <laughs> in the ground and leave and really dramatically say how offended I was that people would not read the words of these wonderful authors and would circumvent that entire beautiful, wonderful process that we're talking about. Um, so I have a v deep anxiety about, you know, um, rap genius or genius uh, basically just supplanting Smoop or SparkNotes, although probably would be okay from a monetization standpoint. Um, <laughs> but so two things save me. One, on genius, the text is always there. You can never get away from the text. Um, and so that, that makes me feel better than just summary where, you know, you're quite far removed from the text. Um, and secondly, that rap genius is always open. The process of annotation is infinite. So even if we have the best annotated version of Hamlet in the world in two years, five years, whatever, um, with Stephen Greenblatt's, you know, verified annotations, um, anybody can still come along and add a suggestion. Anybody can still come along and join that process and that that is at the heart of the website and hope will always be at the forefront of it and that nobody will ever, there will always be passive users just as most people are passive users of Wikipedia even though you can sign up and get involved um, and I hope that the balance of uh, editors versus or, you know knowledge producers versus uh, passive recipients of knowledge will be shifted dramatically in the history of genius as, as opposed to uh, something like Wikipedia. Um, but there's no doubt, you know, teachers ask me all the time, like, well, couldn't students just basically plagiarize from, you know, the Hamlet? Um, and, you know, we don't have any uh, tools to stop them from doing that. Um, but the whole point of the website is for everybody to be a, a scholar and join the conversation. Uh, and so you'd really be breaking with the spirit of that to just copy from Wikipedia or something. Do you post uh, rules for citing? Uh, yeah, we have rules for citing. I mean, you know, one of the cool things about Rap Genius is that um, even when I discovered it as a high school teacher and it was just um, just Rap Genius, they were pretty rigorous. I mean, the guys that, st that started the website are from Yale. It was pretty rigorous, you know, guidelines for how to use the site. You know, no text speak, you know, proper grammar, you know, use links to cite your sources when you're making an argument. It's also like this is what I tell my students all the time in different, yeah. uh, different form. Um, and we have specifically like how to cite our site using MLA format or how to cite um, okay. MLA format within an annotation. So we, we do try to be rigorous about that, but of course not every Jay-Z fan is doing that. Are specific well, annotations uh, searchable? Um, now I'm just trying to think like if, if this is going to foster a kind of plagiarism business of people pillaging from Rap Genius and other sort of public annotation sites. You, you can, if you search a phrase that somebody's <laughs> using annotation on Google, I think that annotation would come up, um, you know, as a Rap Genius page. So if I you see. Google two sentences from somebody's annotation, it would come up. I see. Um, yeah. So we we can search it internally, you know, in in the system. But what we're trying to do with Annotation Studio is to support multiple readings and multiple interpretations uh, of a text, so they can be layered, so they can be accessed. But there are always different kinds of layers. It's almost like a palimpsestral layering of, of annotation sets. So this could be an expert layer uh, that the students could have access to. 
uh, sort of an authorial reading, but it could also be different kinds of readings by other students from previous uh, semesters and so on. So it's really to support these different readings because I think you know, that's something that's very important that we think about the text. There are many different ways how to read a text and how to interpret a, a text, and we want to encourage that approach. Jim. Hi, I'm uh, Jim <coughs> Parody. I'm one of the uh, people working in the project. Uh, I'd like to invite you to maybe address the question of the future of reading, because uh, there's implied there uh, some sense that it's going to be different, or does it mean that people are going to be better read, or how are, how are these technologies actually influencing people's reading, and what does the future of reading imply? I invite each one of you to maybe think about that and make some comments. Probably right now it's just an observation um, because you know, people have been accused of no longer uh, reading longer texts when they're online. It's just a short format and so on. What we found that people now can get engaged with longer texts you know, through annotation, so that dramatically changes the way uh, how texts are actually perceived and, and experienced through that annotation. So I think the, the reading, the long form, is one way that, that these kind of tools can actually encourage you know, readers to go back to the original text and relate their own thoughts to that. I think it's interesting that the title is The Future of Reading, Not the Future of the Book. Um, I think that's a, those are pretty different questions. Um, sure. I'm less... Uh, optimistic about the future of the book, I would say, um, in part because of what I see in, in the market, but also in part because I just moved from North Carolina to New York and had like over 30 boxes of books, and it was really the last straw for me for, for carrying around all these academic tomes that I've annotated over the years since high school and through grad school, and, and, uh, et cetera. Um, but I think the future of reading, I'm, I'm very optimistic about because I think, um, and this, I don't have any research to back this up, but I think young people are reading and writing possibly more than they ever have because of social media on Facebook, on Twitter, on Genius, um, and that that's not always the most responsible kind of, of, write, uh, of, of reading and writing, um, but that it can become more so um, if we help them learn how to write for the 21st century um, and be smarter users of social media, and, and Rap Genius included, um, they'll, they'll still be reading and writing for a long time. Um, and when Rap Genius supplants Twitter as the major you know, social network for sharing ideas, um, that process will be complete. <laughs> Sometime in the next couple of weeks. Huh? Uh, it's going to take five years. But. I think the thing I've learned from Rap Genius, uh, you've made reading a game. Yep. Uh, student uh, readers um, can accumulate points until they become a genius. I think that might be something to think about for the future of reading. Uh, not that it become competitive, but it, that as it becomes more social, it can adopt some of the, the practices of game worlds uh, that make um, all kinds of knowledge uh, consumption more exciting um, for people. So that's a way to be working privately, but also socially uh, with text. We already have it in games. I think you know, it might be interesting to think about future reading as more like games. Certainly, it goes on in the classroom, too, the kind of interpretive point scoring that can sometimes yeah. happen Implicitly, uh, yeah. be between, mm -hmm. between students. Um, 
I'm, I'm no Nostradamus. I would say that uh, the future of reading is one that it will be increasingly social, will be increasingly uh, multimedia, and will draw on <laughs> an array of multimedia tools, and, and will happen, uh, I think, almost certainly online uh, more and more. Um, yes, question. Hi, I'm Kelly Kreisen of Comparative Media Studies, um, and I think this is another way of asking maybe in a more specific context for you to reflect on the future of reading. And primarily, this is a question for Jeremy, but it may extend to Annotation Studio as well. I'm interested in the fact that your work on the poetry side of the site is framed in terms of education, and that we've been talking about the future of reading largely in terms of how it transforms the classroom. But what are the other spaces or other ways in which reading might be transformed um, outside of education? Or why is education particularly so important when we're talking about the future of reading? Um, I mean, I think uh, education is important because we have a lot of captive readers. <laughs> um, and so if you want to have the best annotated version of Hamlet, um, your best bet is to talk to a bunch of teachers that are teaching Hamlet. Um, and that's where students are learning to read and write. And uh, so it's a great space to start, to jumpstart you know, the greatest literary uh, site on the planet. Um, that said, I mean, I, I, part of what makes me hopeful about the future of reading is looking at what's going on the rap side of the site and seeing people, you know, annotating as a daily activity on these rap lyrics, close reading, having conversations, editing, um, you know, literally doing, you know, compositional work to, to bring, you know, ideas together, um, you know, and that's, that's an educational uh, project, but it's just not literally taking place in the classroom. Um, and I think all parts of, of, of rap genius and genius are, are educational in that sense. Um, but I also hope that, you know, that uh, the literary side of the site will uh, start to become inhabited, and it already is to a smaller extent than Rap Genius, um, by everyday readers that are interested in close reading all variety of texts, not just classrooms. Um, and that maybe, you know, classrooms that are interested in working in public will interact with those folks and will develop larger reading communities. Um, mm -hmm. what? Well, what I like about your question is that um, uh, you're imagining a space outside the classroom, and I think that's really important because I think annotation is a very creative way to engage with the text, and we haven't talked about how annotation could be inspiring, inspiring for creative writing and creative thinking and, and fan work that is creative. So uh, I think it expands our notion of what a classroom is or what education is to think in those terms, but we should even be thinking outside um, the, the classroom in terms of how reading and annotation can um, uh, get creative work happening. And also it translates back to, to one of my beginning remarks is to practice certain you know, almost scholarly principles, how to engage with a text, how to think about a text. And I think this is a way where students can practice that in very interesting ways. But it will also translate, hopefully, outside of the classroom so that it's more a way of reading, experiencing a new way of reading that they have either never experienced or you know, forgotten about. So reinventing that, uh, again, in a digital space will also translate into other spaces. You talked, when about um, the, towards the end of your presentation about cultivating a responsibility towards yeah. the text as one of the real objectives of um, conducting these annotation exercises. Can you talk a little bit more about what that means and how the practice of annotation um, well, it has a very uh, practical sense in that these frail uh, manuscripts um, and uh, materials that are vanishing I'm concerned about preserving them in forms that will keep them alive. Um, but uh, I also, 
I have seen this. I mean, I just didn't come out of the blue. I've seen my students get interested in uh, uh, texts um, uh, and want to care for them. I think annotation is a form of nurturance. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's that attitude of caring that I see as a social uh, virtue and as um, a way to relate to texts with responsibility, not just taking them in. And the, the, the downside that, that David was talking about is the narcissism of reading. Oh, it's mine. I want it. Well, what if you think it's mine and I'm going to take care of it? That gives you another level of interaction. And that's nice. I think that's a beautiful way to put it. And I've seen the same thing happen on Rap Genius, both as a teacher with students and as a user myself and, and every day and watching the site grow. And I'll just speak to my early interactions with the site. You know, I was a, a rap fan. I came to it as kind of, oh, what a neat place to talk about my favorite rap from the 90s when I was growing up. Um, and I would get obsessed. I would be like, oh, wow, like, you know, uh, Talib Kweli is like totally un annotated here. Like, I need to be the top scholar of Talib Kweli. I need to have the fully annotated, you know, whatever album. And so I would just get obsessed with, you know, finishing a song and being like, okay, I think that song's pretty solid. Moving on to the next song, taking care of the album, and then making sure that that artist that I loved was um, well cared for and yeah. nurtured in terms yeah. of scholarship and annotation. Yeah. And uh, that's certainly the drive behind uh, a lot of the content generation and curation on Rap Genius is people oh, that great. love the content and want to care for it and become obsessed with it. Yeah, yeah. So if you love Thackeray, care for Thackeray, and wish to nurture and preserve him, please do. Um, Rap Genius or Annotation Studio, your pick. Uh, yeah, Cora. Hi, I'm Cora Craft. I work with the Communications Forum. I just have a quick question for both the Annotation Studio and for um, Rap Genius and their various representations. Um, I'm wondering if you've ever thought about including critical texts and allowing people to annotate them. That might be too meta. Um, and I understand. I can also see where it would be problematic because you might be able to, you might have people pointing at things and saying, you know, I think this argument is dumb. Although I'm sure that's a problem you run into anyway with people saying, you know, I don't like this piece of music. Um, but I can also see how it would be really valuable, and I'm thinking specifically about my own background, which is in art history, you know, how great it would be if you could put up um, a piece of writing by Clement Greenberg and have people annotate it with either images um, or, you know, if you're reading through it and you're like, oh, yeah, abex, what does that look like? Or abstract expressionism, like, what does that look like again? And then you have an image right there. Um, and I also think it would be great, a good teaching tool or it could be a good teaching tool. Also, you know, I do understand it would be pretty problematic. Um, but you could put up secondary, secondary sources and have students annotate it with questions as a way of interacting with the text. I'm just wondering if that's ever been discussed in either of the uh, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. We've done that. For example, I've used Annotation Studio in a film class. And the students were actually annotating uh, film reviews. Uh, and relating their own viewing experience you know, with, with that of, of a professional film reviewer. And that was a very interesting exercise for, for them to do. Uh, the other aspect uh, is also, again, related to copyright. Mm -hmm. And course. that's an issue, you know, can we put up these texts, you know, which are really interesting and important, mm -hmm. uh, and having a whole series of, of secondary literature up there, uh, but limitations in copyright, we can just use excerpts of that. Right. You know, but and that's, that's where copyright really doesn't make sense because nobody actually buys that stuff. Right. Right? <laughs> like, people actually are going to buy Juno Diaz, so I don't want to mess with that. I would help every you know, scholar who's you know, basically only being bought by libraries by putting it on Genius or on Annotations to have people actually interact with it yeah. in a way that you could watch. I mean, yeah, we've, we've done similar projects. We have a partnership with JSTOR mm -hmm. where we've gotten some articles up and had uh, classes use those. Uh, even using metrics to find out which universities are 
um, you know, downloading X article the most and trying to pinpoint what those classes are. And we had a high school class in California um, who was reading, I uh, can't remember if it was Huckleberry, it was Huckleberry Finn, and had like three or four articles, famous articles um, about Huckleberry Finn on the site through JSTOR um, that they were going back and forth. And I think there's a couple interesting things that come from putting secondary sources on. I mentioned a little bit in my presentation. One, I think it's great for students to be able to go back and forth and sort of say, oh, he's talking about this passage or she's talking about this passage, and here's the passage, and, and creating that intertextual literal link. Um, but also, as you suggested, um, beginning to move beyond just uh, definitional or encyclopedic entries. Uh, you know, my wife's a biologist, and she keeps telling me, like, we've got to get laboratories to use this for uh, journal clubs where you know, the, everybody in the lab can read an article and then critically, very critically, and very personally in the sense like how does this relate to our research? How is it wrong? What are we doing different? What could we do differently? I mean, I think there's really radical potential for you know, uh, changing peer review and changing how you know, scholarship is transmitted um, by doing the secondary thing. But it is uh, a copyright problem. Thank you. Uh, my name is Liam. Uh, I'm a in CMS and a developer in Annotation Studio. Um, I've been thinking, I guess, maybe because of the discussion on Rap Genius about remixing uh, and sort of creating new creative works out of these older ones. I think most of what we've been talking about with annotation has been scholarly um, and whether you can annotate uh, reviews of, of work, for instance, that we were just talking about. But I'm wondering whether there's ways for it to inspire new forms of creative writing or music making or ways to juxtapose different texts uh, and find uh, find new meaning in those, and whether there's a there are affordances in these platforms, or there could be, that would uh, allow for that. That's a good question. Well, we are uh, experimenting with uh, a couple of these ideas. Um, one is uh, that we actually will be implementing, you know, very soon is the transition from the annotations, you know, into a writing space, so that you can actually use the annotations as the basis for. Uh, creative writing or for other purposes, uh, you know, essay writing to formulate arguments and so on. So it's really taking the annotations, not from just from one text, but from multiple texts and, and use them in a new text uh, that can be then formulated and put up again in annotation studio uh, to be annotated by the peers or by an instructor. Um, so that's, that's one form. Um, and there are also other ways of, of doing that, but I'll let yeah, that's awesome. Oh, um, um, I'm, I'm teaching a class right now on um, uh, authors remixing other authors. Uh, so I've been trying to have my students annotate the source text and the um, adapted text. Uh, and eventually, annotation studio will allow them to, to see them on the same page. So um, uh, you know, my project started with the idea of remixing and thinking about, um, I would love to see on, on Annotation Studio, for example, a rap song that was based on a literary text and annotations going across mm -hmm. them because mm -hmm. that's the kind of creative work that right. uh, I think is Just, just to exciting. add to that, you know, that's exactly also what we're trying to build in, in, in the next, is the juxtaposition of two texts or a text and a video. So for example, yeah. that you can see you know, sort of an adaptation of a part of Moby Dick, you know, how that has been interpreted in film or in, in, in advertising and so on, and to uh, annotate across these different texts. And I think that also for translation studies, for example, that's an interesting, but it could be a creative text, it could be an existing text, it could be a video and a creative text that you know, came out of that uh, video experience or a rap song. Um, 
Some, some of that stuff is a little bit far afield from the main you know, mission of Rap Genius. Uh, we don't have any portability introduced into the system yet to allow you to export it to a Word file and, and make it the beginning of the paper. You can cut and paste, so it's a little more of a hack, and, and we, we do think that that's going on or see that going on with, with teachers and with, with students. And we, we've had teachers use it for peer review. Of course, it's you know, not as robust as something like uh, Word's track changes or or even a Google Doc in terms of resolving um, peer comments. Um, but I think part of your question was about uh, you know, new types of writing that can go on, original creative writing. So you know, young poets, non-famous poets, non-famous rappers are always sharing their work on the site. Uh, there's radical potential there for distribution, obviously, for publishing your work in a, in a new way. Um, I also think that layers of annotation as a kind of um, you know, uh, immediate and necessary part of the writing process, uh, allow for a kind of creative dimensionality to the composition process. I'm not just writing something, but if I suddenly basically am required by virtue of the platform I'm on, which is an annotation platform, to offer a second layer that is not just footnotes um, and, and could really be anything. Uh, could be a uh, backstory that doesn't fit into the poem. I mean, Artists love the, the, the platform for this reason. You know, Juno Diaz loved nerding out on his own work. Um, a lot of writers really love, you know, explaining where this little phrase came from. So there's a dimensionality that could, you know, just as easily be part of an original writing process that, that takes place with um, within an annotation platform, and we do see that going on in Rap Genius. I like the idea of annotation spinning off, you know, producing creative uh, forms like, say, I don't know, a novel in annotation or whatnot. Oh, yes. But it does, it does seem that um, annotation as a practice to some degree cuts across the distinction that, you, that your question uh, relied on between scholarly work and, and creative work, that it is a, a kind of creative um, engagement with the text involving readers, readers of all sort, of course. Um, attempt to find their way in the text and, and understand it. But, Just a, a, as a side anecdote, uh, when I talked to the, the German-Turkish writer Safa Genocuk uh, about how he started writing in, in German, although his original language is, is Turkish, he uh, said he started with annotating the text that he needed to read in class. Um, and suddenly, you know, sort of he annotated more and more, and the annotations became uh, less and less connected to the original text, but became sort of their own little texts. And that's how he formed his first uh, uh, poems. Uh, and so it's a really interesting way from reading, annotating, then to actually becoming a creative writer. So I think it can actually happen. <laughs> You've been on hold for a while. Hi, I'm Brandon Poosley, uh, academic technologist at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Um, well, I can certainly see uh, the, the inherent value in this work just through the scale and engagement that, that you all speak about in your work. I'm curious um, if you have a couple brief comments on or places that I can go to find any academic research that supports the mm. educational outcomes of annotation, close reading, I guess specifically annotation, whether it's traditional and then also in a digital context, anyone who's doing that, that type of work. We're trying to develop our own. <laughs> <laughs> but, but there's some literature around. Uh, and uh, you know, it's, it's quite often not in the literary space, uh, but it's also in, in students reading a scientific text, for example, and using annotation for that. 
uh, or different kinds of annotations, how they influence the, the reading, um, you know, also the knowledge production out of that reading. But there's not a lot uh, that has been written around that. What are the metrics for assessment that are used in existing literature uh, assessing the effectiveness of, of online annotation? Is it self-reporting? Is it um, grades or simply quality of papers over time? How do you, how do you track progress? Um, or the, you know, the, the palpable benefits, as you were suggesting. Of well, one the aspect of these tools. is looking at the citations and the references to the text uh, in, in an essay, for example, so that you can refer back to uh, you know, the original reading process that has influenced the, 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 the writing mm -hmm. process. So that's one, one of the metrics. But of course, you know, there, there are different methods of doing that uh, with interviews and, and uh, peer reviews and peer groups and so on. Yeah, sure. I'm all qualitative. Uh, I'm not too quantitative. Uh, we're, we're still growing up in terms of metrics at, at, at Rap Genius, at least I don't know. Uh, of, I haven't really read a lot of secondary literature on, on the phenomenon. But I, you know, there are a lot of great stories about users on the site uh, becoming better writers, I mean, we can, we can point to that. Again, it's not, I don't know how we measure it by side by saying, well, they're really growing, you know, look, looking a lot better than they did before. Um, and also tracking activity of users uh, that might start, say, on a hip hop song and then find their way to, to poems and um, become more involved in different spaces. Uh, and, and we're still figuring out how to capture those, capture that data and, um, and tell stories from that data. Um, but if you find some, I'd love to read it too. So, and I'm, I, these guys have great articles on it. But you know, we actually had a graduate student from the Harvard School of Education using the annotations of uh, a non-literary text, and then visualizing how different readers go through the text. Uh, you know, do they start at the beginning and then read sequentially through the end? Or do they jump around in the text? And it's really interesting how they're doing that. So we, we have built into Annotation Studio ways that allow then other people and the students themselves to see their own process of reading, how they go through a text. And I think that's a very interesting aspect to think about the, the research aspect of, of these tools. It's not just you know, an educational tool. But it also allows us to do research and to gain insights into the process. What's actually happening when students are reading? Uh, what kind of annotations do they make? What's the ratio, for example, between private annotations and public annotations? Uh, are there you know, are they tags? How, how important are tags and so on? So I think all of these aspects are important. Are there hot spots in text that because everybody's annotating the same spot, does it mean it's an important spot? Or is it just because other people want to have a conversation about that spot? So there are many questions that, that can arise from that. But also having the built-in mechanisms in order to do that kind of research, I think, is crucial. Can I we, just add one thing yeah, to that, sure. which is that um, I'm not sure this is how apropos of your question this is. but. Um, I, one thing I think is really cool about annotation, and, and when you can, you know, when you're looking at your annotations, both, you know, in your, if you go back to your previous reading of your books that you've read in the past and looking at your annotations, but in these annotation platforms, and I know on ours, where all your annotations are collected in one place, and your ability to go back yourself over that stuff and, and reflect, and it's something that we've been working with teachers to try to do is ask, you know, for a sort of self-assessment. Yeah. 
from students to sort of go back and look at their own annotations and think through their own reading practices uh, and skills and point to what they're doing well and, yeah. and, and you know, uh, fess up to what they need to work on. Um, and also as a peer review for their own writing. So if you, if you, and this may go back to your question, if you're asked to annotate your own writing, and say it's like a freshman comp essay, um, and you're, you have to point to rhetorically what you're doing well and what you're, what you're not, and kind of, again, give yourself a self-assessment of your writing, I think those are a, you know, powerful ways that annotation and digital annotation, just because of the way that things are visualized, allows to happen. Two more quick questions. Hi, I'm Yu from Comparative Media Studies. And a simple question is, when there are too many annotations, both spatially, every sentence is highlighted, highlighted <laughs> and every annotation is too long to read, have you been thinking of some ranking or sorting or filtering techniques to sift gold out of ashes? Uh, what, what program did you say you were in? Uh, computer computer yeah. I was hoping you were in uh, computer science and I would <laughs> offer to hire you to help us figure that out. Uh, we've toyed with this idea of like, I mean, for one thing, on, on, on lyrics, it's a relatively simple, you know, uh, form, uh, you know, in, to navigate, you know, line by line or couplets or phrases and things like that. Prose is a challenge for us, um, kind of. Uh, you know, iterating our, our uh, UX for prose and, and how one would navigate something de uh, denser like Gatsby, which is, looks a little noisy, you might have noticed in, in the version I showed. We've thought about um, one thing would be, say you open up, um, you know, uh, Beyonce's Drunken Love, and the annotation that's been opened the most flashes, um, or the annotation that's got the most upvotes automatically opens, um, so that you're, you would be guided towards certain annotations that would be prioritized within the game system that Wynn mentioned, um, or using some other kind of form of uh, heat mapping of activity from, from users to try to help train the eye or guide the eye as it's navigating the text. But uh, we're looking for ideas for how to, how to do that exact problem. And it, it becomes, I think, a, a bigger problem for us in terms of moving beyond lyrics and poetry to long-form prose, um, where the units of, of analysis are um, more complicated in some sense. Right. So we're working on different uh, filtering mechanisms. Again, you know, one way of filtering is, a, is according to tags, but it could be according to time. It could be according to different kinds of users. So, uh, but that's done in combination with a whole visual heat map display of all the annotations you know, on, on the text. So you can actually filter to see where things are going on within a text so that you never lose sort of the sight of the whole activity, but you can filter sort of what you're reading. Uh, and also, you know, it's just reading basically the annotations, what of the text that you see on the page and not necessarily the ones that are off the page. So there are different uh, filtering mechanisms that we're working on. I'm curious about Patsy's question. Yeah. Patsy, do you, do you, did you have a question for us before? Okay. No? okay. Well, we are out of time. Okay, I see. All right, great. Uh, thank you all very much for coming. Thank you to our panelists, Kurt Fent, Wynn Kelly, Jeremy Dean. Thanks so much. That was awesome. great. Yeah, thanks. Very nice. Very nice.